0: Welcome to the Data Pulse. I'm your host, Anika. In this podcast, I dive into the growing role that data science plays in the latest biomedical innovations. Join me as I go behind the scenes and check the pulse with domain experts and rising stars who are leading advances in data-driven human health. Today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Beck, who is the co-founder and CEO of PathAI, a company evolving pathology using machine learning and deep learning techniques to drive faster, more accurate diagnoses of disease. Prior to co-founding PathAI, Andy was on the faculty of Harvard Medical School in the Department of Pathology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He earned his MD from Brown Medical School and completed residency and fellowship training in anatomic pathology and molecular genetic pathology from Stanford University, where he also completed a PhD in biomedical informatics, developing one of the first machine learning-based systems for cancer pathology. He has published over 110 papers in the fields of cancer biology, cancer pathology, and biomedical informatics. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today, Andy. Thank you for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So your
0: training through your MD-PhD uniquely combines both medicine and informatics. What led to your interest specifically to applying machine learning techniques to the field of pathology?
1: Well, when I started my medical training, which was a long time ago now, back in the early 2000s, it was early in the days of being able to... um, to generate very large data sets from medical samples. So this was kind of the early days of gene expression profiling, and and genomics was really just getting started. The Human Genome Project uh, had recently been completed. So it just seemed like there was gonna be a a great opportunity to be able to combine kind of understanding large data sets with applications to biomedical problems. And then, you know, once I I went into the medical specialty of pathology, that's an interesting specialty that's really largely image-based, particularly the area of anatomic pathology, which is where I focus. And there's a really rich history of, of pathologists for the past 150 years looking at you know images and sort of in their minds, working with sort of practitioners and, and using their own experience to sort of map from this really complicated set of images to specific diagnoses that will guide clinical care. And kind of the clinical training in that really even to today, but, but you know, certainly when I did my training was all about using really old fashioned methods for doing this. So uh, working with atlases of images and working with experts uh, to do it. And I became very interested in my residency training and, you know, some new technologies and image processing that could make this even better. And, you know, when I trained, it was really before deep learning, but there was a lot of machine learning being done in image processing. And, uh, and I did a PhD back then to try to use image processing to better, to sort of study how well you could train computers to, to better identify where cancer is and then to potentially better predict patient prognosis from analysis of those images. And then I've been sort of pursuing that line of work uh, ever since. And just over the past five or six years, there have been tremendous advances in, in the, the broader field of computer vision. Uh, And in the work we're doing, applying deep learning to application in pathology.
0: Yeah, I'd love to learn a little bit more about the first machine learning based system that you developed for cancer pathology. At the time, there likely weren't as many standards for the types of metrics to use or the evaluative criteria to determine whether or not your algorithm was actually predicting things well and in a way that the medical community would also be accepting of could you expand a little on that process sure
1: you know in our field there are really two big forms of what is you know called in machine learning ground truth or or you could call it the reference standard if there's less certainty about how we define truth and really the two things are and we still use this every day are either you know what the experts say and for this you typically don't want to rely on one expert you want to rely on a consensus of experts uh, and we do this and an example of this would be you know can you accurately identify where metastatic breast cancer is on large sets of images you know half of which contain metastatic cancer and the other half that don't and you'd essentially have a group of experts decide based on whatever technologies are available to them including in many cases things like H&E stained images or for confirmation you might use specialized techniques like immunohistochemistry in the setting of identifying where metastatic cancer is and then you have to just you know use the experts and whatever technologies at their disposal to define you know sample set zero that has no metastatic cancer and sample set one that does have metastatic cancer in and then that becomes the input to the machine learning system and some of the basic principles of machine learning continue to apply every single day and you know continue to be uh, used correctly as well as misused in the field. So there's still a lot of value in in knowing that you need to have a training set, a validation set, and then an independent test set. But those sorts of principles, you know, really withstand the test of time. And then, you know, that's just the beginning. And then they're sort of seeing the real-world generalization capabilities, which is often uh, the next step once you have a model that's been well-trained, well-validated, and then well-tested. So we continue to do that, you know, from the work I was doing ten years ago all the way to the work today, um, and the second real type of, of ground truth or reference standard that that I've always been very motivated to use, um, and we're seeing increasingly in the field, and certainly at Path AI, this is our our sort of optimal form of ground truth is patient outcomes. And really, the goal is not only to recreate what the experts doing, but it's to do it even better with respect to patient outcomes. And really, our mission at Path AI is improving patient outcomes with um, with AI powered pathology. Um, And for that, at least with serious diseases, like like oncology, there's a a real standard in the field is keeping track of things like uh, disease progression as viewed through radiology, and then ultimately um, disease outcome as viewed by patient survival, first with respect to progression of their disease, but ultimately overall survival, uh, which is how long patients are living after their diagnosis. and our goal is to really use, use AI-based pathology to, to find the right treatment for the right subset of patients so that patients can really have the greatest likelihood um, of living as long as possible uh, following their diagnosis.
0: Right, right. So you've just talked about how your journey took you from your training in both pathology and your fascination with the statistics side of things, and you were able to merge the two. and and evolve that over time into what has become Path AI. I've come to appreciate that, especially in the biotech industry, there's a lot of crosstalk and a lot of overlap and collaboration between industry and academia. And I think that's one of the beauties of this base of innovation is that the ideas can come from both places and the advances often complement each other.
1: No, absolutely. That's the thing. There's so many similarities and commonalities. And in some ways, the commonalities are larger than the differences. And it's really thinking about how to work most effectively with both worlds, you know, to have the biggest impact.
0: Right. So I wanna switch over to talking about the technology itself. If you had to explain what computer vision for partially automated image-based classification is, how would you describe it? And how exactly is PathAI adopt the typical pathology workflow to incorporate this technology?
1: So one of the major amazing things the human brain can do is identify um, the contents of images in a way that multiple people will agree on what they're looking at. Um, And we have a great sort of intuitive ability to do that. So if you ask someone whether a dog is in a picture, you're gonna get very good agreement from people that a dog is in a picture. But then if you ask, you know, what is the species of dog, you know, the agreement level may go down. And then if you start asking, well, how many brown hairs are on that dog in comparison to the, you know, white hairs on that dog, then the agreement is going to go down even more. So there's certain like intuitions that humans are really good at um, and others that we're just not very good at. And the same thing happens in pathology. So if you know the job of an anatomic pathologist is to look at literally hundreds of slides per day under the microscope and when you're viewing a single slide under the microscope it probably contains on the order of tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of different cell types and different tissue types on each slide Um, and they're stained in such a way that they can tell you know what is a cancer cell and what is a lymphocyte and what is a fibroblast and what is a macrophage and what is a blood vessel And there are these just very complicated scenes on every single slide. So if you just think about one day of work for one pathologist, they're probably being asked to review, you know, on the order of hundreds of millions of different cells and to give a diagnosis on each slide that would then sort of correspond to the diagnosis for each patient, let's say. Um, And there are certain areas that people can agree on quite well, like for the most part, does this patient have cancer? Yes or no, that's something where there's pretty good agreement. Um, But things like how many cancer cells are there, what proportion of the cancer cells express, say, a drug target of interest, those things become much more challenging. So what we've done is to try to train the computer to do both things. And the way we train the computer is very similar to how you would train a human. It's particularly with deep learning. It's essentially the same thing. If you want a, a kid to be able to know, you know, what's a cell phone versus what's a coffee mug. You show them four examples of a cell phone, four examples of a coffee mug, they typically pick up the distinction. Well, computers aren't quite that smart, but it's the same principle. Uh, we show the computer millions of examples of labeled different cell types. So is it a cancer cell? Is it a lymphocyte? Is it a macrophage? Is it, fibroblast? Is it a fibroblast? Is it a blood vessel or an endothelial cell? And then also tissue regions, where are the regions of cancer, the regions of stroma, the regions of necrosis that are dead tissue. And then by providing... the the computer with millions of examples of all the different cell types and different tissue regions um, and these labeled examples are being provided by in our case hundreds of different pathologists Uh, the computational system actually gets exposure to a very large and diverse training set to where it can then be provided with unlabeled whole site images and based on all the learnings done from the training set can then deploy that model and identify in an automated fashion, all of the different cell types and tissue regions on the, on the new image. And then from that can actually quantify precisely things like how much cancer is in that image, what proportion of the cancer is expressing a drug target, how many immune cells are in it, how, what proportion the immune cells are expressing the drug target and that quantitative data, in our opinion, can't really be obtained in any other way and can be very useful for better understanding why patients respond to therapy or don't respond to therapy. Um, as well as providing a very automated, standardized way of distributing those sorts of tools globally.
0: So what you're describing sounds like you can gain a better understanding both of the mechanisms that might be underpinning patient response based on this tremendous amount of data that you have that's been labeled by experts. But you can also then use that in an actionable way to say, this patient may likely respond to this therapy given this makeup of their, say, tumor microenvironment, for example, or the ratio of different cell types that exist. When making the latter decisions about what action to take for the patient, could you expand on how you make the link between a patient's makeup that you see in a pathology image to what the actual treatment ends up being?
1: Sure. So to do this, we rely on data sets to learn from where we have not only the images, and if we're training the sort of pathologist annotations, and we might get pathologist annotations on, say 1% of the image, and then can then deploy um, a system to label every cell in every image. So not only do we train models to identify the components of the image, we also in many cases get images from completed trials where for every patient we have not only the set of images, but also the treatment information and the outcome information and from that, we can, again, in a machine learning framework, build models to understand which features are associated with the response to drug. And then on a new you know, test data set can then validate those observations. And then that becomes the medical evidence that would allow you to then deploy this you know, in clinical practice post-regulatory approval for an actual companion diagnostic which is defined as a diagnostic that's essential for making the decision about giving a certain drug in a certain indication. Got it.
0: This is fascinating and brings me to a couple other follow-up questions. The first of which is related to the classes of algorithms that you found to be most effective for doing this kind of exploration. I would imagine like a typical convolutional neural net that has been traditionally applied to images would be a good framework and I know that you can build off of some of the pre-trained models. Do you find that typically the base architectures are enough or is it more of an art to identify which approaches are going to be the most successful?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know, this all again sort of has to one has to work backwards. And what problem am I really trying to solve? And then, you know, the questions on which, you know, model architectures and hyperparameters and data sets are required become much more answerable. Um, So I do think thinking backwards is really helpful. Like what exactly are you trying to do from the image? But yes, I think certainly deep learning, deep convolutional neural nets um, are the basis of pretty much, I think, every really high performing uh, image processing type task. And and we um, at PathAI use many different architectures for as well as training regimens and also data sets um, to build these models and also the deploying sort of strategy is also really important. You know, how do you deploy these things at scale? Some of the unique challenges of whole site images are they're just quite large. So um, that practical consideration, you know, you can't just feed in for most typical uh, off-the-shelf networks. You can't just feed in a whole site image and expect to get anything kind of meaningful out of it. So a lot of decisions have to be made about about just how you're gonna process these large images. What are the objects you're trying to identify? Uh, How are you gonna generate the training data set to identify those things? How are you gonna train the model? And I do think, yeah, starting with sort of proven architectures for other computer vision tasks is a good place to start. And then sort of figuring out where your error is happening, how am I going to fix those errors, you know, is the next step.
0: Yeah, definitely. You mentioned working backwards. Part of that, I'm sure, is related to determining what diseases are amenable to these kinds of images. Is there a certain type of disease that you found is more appropriate for this task? And if so, like what aspects of a disease would make it more fitting?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So one is again like working backwards, not even so much from the deep learning, the computer vision piece, but like what is the the killer research question or medical question that really needs to be addressed to make sure it's truly an unmet and you know an area of unmet need either in research into drug development or in clinical practice. So you don't want to build something that works well for a problem that no one cares about. So I'd say that's actually probably potentially the most important piece. Uh, The cool thing about deep learning is it works so well for almost any visual task. So for us, you know, the diseases that are most relevant to us in the pathology space is really anything where the analysis of whole slide images is already a routine uh, part of disease diagnosis or subtyping of disease. So this would include every type of solid tumor um, and even a lot of leukemias where things like bone marrow biopsies play a role. It would also include other types of diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, where biopsies of the gastrointestinal tract are an important component of both diagnosing and monitoring uh, response to treatment in disease, uh, as well as liver diseases like non alcoholic steatohepatitis, where biopsies are used both for diagnosis to enroll patients in trials, um, as well as for measuring the effect of treatment on disease pathology, where we look at samples before treatment and after treatment. Um, and the, the general technologies we're working with are broadly applicable uh, to pretty much any task in pathology where these whole site images play an important role.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about some of PathAI's global health efforts, which are related to the partnership that you have with the Gates Foundation. You hope to share this technology that you've developed globally allowing those in developing areas to receive accurate medical information and treatment. I very much admire this aim as it can be difficult to make access to the latest, greatest technologies more equitable and affordable for people around the world. In your experience, what has it taken to systematically address some of the inequalities in access to the latest innovations? How do you plan to make your technology affordable to communities and then also trusted by some of the folks who may be hearing of it for the first time?
1: Yeah, no it's a great question in many parts of the world there are um, far far fewer pathologists than needed so this could could be um, a powerful force for for addressing you know many of the some of the inequalities in terms of access to to the best technologies for solving a certain problems. So we're definitely building our platform with that in mind, in the sense that we're, you know, we're not at all a single site. We we aim to be globally distributed. We're working with partners both in drug development as well as laboratories who also are already global or have global ambitions. And I think you know, for us, you mentioned the challenge of doing this in a startup biotech environment. And we, we definitely see that challenge as well and our you know immediate priority and focus is you know building making the advances we need to really make progress along this path but to do that we realize it's going to be a long term initiative that's going to take you know a large team a lot of investment and really a lot of proof points of showing the value of this technology for everything from routine diagnosis all the way to precision medicine applications you have to have the right sort of pre-analytic setup in terms of laboratory infrastructure, and then, you know, to make this data actually actionable, you have to have the right um, systems in place for then deploying the right treatments based on what the diagnosis shows. But the diagnosis is without a doubt a really critical part of that, uh, and we're excited to help contribute to that goal.
0: That's wonderful. I'm excited to hear about the progress as it continues to evolve. I'd love to dig a little bit into how you think about problems. When you're faced with a new biomedical question, how do you reach a data-driven solution? So one is to just really think it through from
1: beginning to end. What data would I need to really answer this question? And often like the deep learning is only a part of it, or the statistical test at the end is only a part of it. So I just think having the sort of discipline to write down from beginning to end what is actually required to answer this. And if you don't have the answer to be very humble and to realize there's definitely probably like a hundred experts in Boston, let alone around the world who could really help you answer the question. So I think it's sort of like first, first knowing what might it actually take from beginning to end? What would success look like in terms of answering this question successfully? And then being very proactive in asking people questions around to answer those um, and to not sort of be piecemeal about it, to to really think through. Because often um, that exposes a lot, like that exposes problems with the approach is say to only focus on the computer vision piece while not thinking about how statistically at the end you're going to test the efficacy of the computer vision system. So kind of thinking beginning to end, really having a clear understanding of what success looks like. And then being very, um, sort of collaborative and proactive and filling in the gaps with experts who probably know, um, much more than, than we do about the topic we're going after because they're an expert in, you know, that form of biostatistics or that form of deep learning or, and then you sort of learn in the process. The other sort of, I don't know, thing I've learned is, is often data is not the really limiting fact. And I think people in machine learning often think data is, and, uh, that it's often very valuable to start with small data sets and to understand where errors are coming from. And then to actually ask the question, well, as I make the data set 25% bigger, you know, are my predictions, or is my confidence getting, you know, at least 25% better, or at least that type of, uh, of understanding of, of, of whether data is a limiting factor I find useful. I feel like sometimes there's a sort of, um, almost, uh, belief or faith that you just get more and more data and more good stuff will come out of it. But I think it's actually much better use of time and resources um, to really pressure test that assumption, uh, because in many cases, the, the limitation isn't amount of data. It's actually something else.
0: That's a really neat point that I've come across in research, too. Now, especially in the sequencing world, we are increasing exponentially the amount of data that we have. but. Often the limitations are, one, when you do finally have enough compute and storage to deal with that data in an efficient way, are you continuing to be critical about both the the metrics that you're using to assess how, how good your predictions are, but then also, are you asking the right questions and should the questions evolve as the data grows?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: I'd imagine that perhaps what would need to accompany this is also a cultural shift both from the computational perspective of providing, as PathAI seems to do with the feature importance, but providing more interpretability. So there's trust in these systems as well, But then also a willingness to explore some of these paradigm shifting technologies that could really shorten the timelines, as you mentioned.
1: Yeah, I think interpretability is a, a component, although I, I kind of think that medical evidence generation is sort of even more important, that you know people trust data, um, in some sense that trumps all because the truth is it's our current system is not very interpretable either I mean why is a pathologist calling something you know an atypical nevus versus a versus a mildly atypical nevus like we, we don't actually have a ton of insight into the the deep model inside brains that are producing that diagnosis um, in the same way it, with a deep learning model making that same classification it can also be very hard to know why it's doing what it's doing so I think, um, I tend to think it's, the, like, for example, the regulators are going to care a lot more about just the strength of the evidence because um, I think that's sort of, inc- you can't argue with that.
0: Right, right. It's a very solid ground truth. Mm-hmm. So just to wrap up, I would love to hear your thoughts on when you reflect on your career so far and on what you want to carry forward with you, what are some of the learnings and frameworks that you consistently rely upon?
1: I do think one is like thinking you know what what does success look like or what could success look like rather than what is the sort of most clear next step on the path I'm already on is can be very valuable and can change uh, change one's course in a positive direction um, and also realizing that that um, that there's always room for sort of course correcting if you go a certain direction and decide it's not the right one, you probably learned something in the process and can now use that information to go on the next thing. So sort of not being uh, fearful of just following a tried and true path, to me, I thought was very important. And and I've met many other people where that kind of allowed them to do things that uh, they could contribute the most to, perhaps because fewer people have done it in the past. Um, So that's one framework is just to sort of, always sort of be thinking about or not always but just keep that framework in mind it's not like not trying to minimize loss but to try to kind of maximize the potential what's possible i think is a a good framework to to think from and then just always uh this sort of beginner's mind or always wanting to learn from uh from those around you and that there's always much more you don't know than you do know um i think is also a really helpful Mindset, uh, particularly when you're trying to uh, work across two different, very complicated fields, and I think it also has a nice parallel with uh, with machine learning, which, which uh, is sort of that's at the core of it is is always learning from your mistakes and realizing data can always teach you more.
0: Absolutely, this has been incredibly insightful. Thank you again, Andy, for taking the time to talk.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining me on today's episode of The Data Pulse. If any of the terms used in today's conversation were foreign to you, feel free to check out the podcast glossary where I've included definitions and links to resources that my guests have shared. Be sure to tune in next week to once again get a sneak peek into the pulse of data-driven biomedicine.